sky is falling, the world trembles beneath it. A Manesca is crying out for a savior. Somebody is hunting down the written mages in the wild, lonely and skinning them alive. Who? A mere girl. In terms of, you know, a mystic element, I do like to include belief, you know, I think it's one of my kind of guides to world building is the idea of, you know, drawing parallels because, you know, civilizations vary, cultures vary, often wildly. But there are several things that will always prevail or, you know, um, there will always be cornerstones of human culture. This is your nautical lantern on the dangerous seas of darkness. Let's push off from the placid shore of the status quo and explore what's beyond the horizon. I am your host, BT, and this is Truth and Shadow, your podcast of the supernatural. Step into a realm where the fabric of reality weaves tales of wonder, transporting you to lands where mythical creatures dance beneath the moonlight. In the tapestry of fantasy fiction, imagination knows no bounds, painting vivid landscapes that defy the mundane. Here, epic adventures unfold like ancient scrolls waiting for the curious minds to unfurl them. Picture a world where magic comes in the air, and every word on the page is a whispered incantation. This genre invites you to explore the extraordinary, to traverse realms where the ordinary fades, and the extraordinary takes center stage. A literary sanctuary where dreams take flight. At the heart of fantasy fiction lies an expansive realm of limitless imagination, a domain where writers wield their creative prowess as master sorcerers conjuring worlds that stretch far beyond the boundaries of reality. In this captivating literary landscape, the storytellers embark on a daring journey, drawing inspiration from a rich fabric woven of the threads of mythical creatures, a pantheon ranging from angels to demons and beyond. These authors, the architects of dream, delve into the depths of their creative reservoirs to breathe life into the narratives that transcend the ordinary. Ancient castles rise majestically from the mist, their stones echoing with the whispers of centuries, enchanted forests dense with the magic of the unseen. Beckon readers into a labyrinth of wonder, where each tree harbors secrets, and every rustle of leaves tales a tale. Yet, it is the characters that truly animate these fantastical landscapes. Crafted with meticulous care, they defy the mundane, possessing a vibrancy that transcends the confines of the written page. Heroes and heroines emerge, their destinies intricately woven into the tapestry of the narrative, navigating a world where the extraordinary becomes the norm. Inspiration, the almighty tool of these literary sorcerers, takes center stage. Within the vast expanse of fantasy fiction, writers envision intricate magic systems that defy the laws of nature or work with it. Spells resonate in the air woven of the very essence of existence. Languages are invented, each word a portal to a realm of enchantment, giving voice to the fantastical tongues spoken by mythical beings. In this dance between darkness and light, fantasy fiction finds its nuanced rhythm. Writers traverse the delicate balance, creating narratives that explore the shadows that lurk within and the brilliance that emanates from celestial realms. In this dance between darkness and light, fantasy fiction finds its nuanced rhythm. Writers traverse the delicate balance, creating narratives that explore the shadows that lurk within ancient dungeons and the balance that emanates from celestial realms. The pen becomes a wand and the writer a conjurer of emotion, weaving tales that resonate on a deep level. 
As readers immerse themselves in these fantastical chronicles, they embark on a parallel journey, transcending the mundane to embrace the extraordinary. The boundaries between dreams and reality blur, and each page becomes a gateway to a realm where the impossible is merely a prelude to the miraculous. In the hands of these literary maestros, fantasy fiction transcends its role as mere storytelling. It becomes a transformative experience, leaving an indelible mark on the reader's soul. It invites us to ponder the boundless horizons of the human imagination, urging us to believe that within the realms of fantasy, the extraordinary is not only possible, but an essential part of the spirit's quest for wonder and meaning. The magic unfolds when readers step into this fantastical realm. As consumers of fantasy fiction, readers become co-creators, engaging in a dance with the author's imagination. The words act as a portal, inviting a reader to visualize, interpret, and fuse their unique perspective into the narrative. In the reader's mind, the dragon soars and the wizard casts spells, and the hero embarks on a heroic quest Yet, each reader paints a different picture, adding layers of richness to the story. This interactive process elevates the act of reading to a collaborative experience, where the author provides the canvas and the reader the colors. Delving deeper into the creative well, fantasy authors often find inspiration in a diverse array of mythical creatures, from the menacing demons that embody darkness and chaos to the ethereal angels representing light and order. These fantastical beings serve as metaphors for the complexities of the human experience. Authors weave these creatures into their narratives exploring themes of good versus evil, redemption, and the enduring power of hope. By tapping into the rich tapestry of mythology, fantasy authors infuse their stories with a timeless resonance that captivates readers across cultures and generations. The journey commences with the storyteller's ink-stained quill, where the delicate strokes of creativity craft narratives that unfurl like ancient scrolls. And as these tales come to life, readers embark on a transformative odyssey, stepping into a world where ordinary limitations surrender to the boundless realm of imagination. It's the power of the imagination. It is the true protagonist of this narrative. It extends its influence far beyond the confines of the written page. In this symbiotic relationship, creators are not mere architects of stories, they're alchemists, infusing their words with the elixir of inspiration. Readers in turn become co-creators, weaving the threads of their imagination into the rich tapestry laid out by the author. Together, they form a communion that transcends the solitary act of reading into a symbiosis which is not confined to the boundaries of the narrative itself. It spills over into the reader's realm, inspiring creativity as they envision alternate endings, imagine fantastical landscapes, and breathe life into the characters beyond the author's description. It's critical thinking, which becomes the compass guiding readers through moral quandary and intricate plot twists, fostering intellectual engagement that extends beyond the book itself. And within the vast expanse of literature, fantasy fiction stands as a testament to the awe-inspiring heights of human imagination. It is the realm where authors draw inspiration from the mythical crafting narratives that beckon us to dream, to explore the uncharted, to embrace the miraculous. This genre is a sanctuary for those who seek to transcend the boundaries of the mundane inviting both wielders of the pen and intrepid readers to embark on journeys beyond the scope of reality. In the grand landscape of literature, fantasy fiction is not just another form of fiction. It is an invocation calling forth the latent powers of imagination within each of us. The author becomes an architect of dreams, helping us construct worlds where the laws of nature yield to the whims of creativity. The mythical creatures that roam these pages are not merely figments of fantasy. They become manifestations of the boundless potential residing in the recesses of the human mind. Whether you find yourself holding the pen, crafting tales that echo across the literary landscape, or you are the reader, eagerly flipping through pages in search of enchantment, remember the inherent power you wield. It is the power to imagine, to create, 
and to be transported to realms where the impossible seamlessly merges with reality. In this shared journey through the realms of fantasy fiction, acknowledge the transformative might of your thoughts within each stroke of the pen or the turn of the page. You contribute to a collective exploration of the limitless reaches of human imagination. So whether you aspire to shape worlds with your words or simply seek refuge within the magic spun by others, recognize the profound impact of the tales woven in the grand tapestry of fantasy fiction. In this realm of imagination, the journey is not merely about the destination, but the wondrous paths carved by the boundless power of your mind. Thank you for joining me on this exploration of the enchanting world where dreams take flight and the extraordinary becomes the norm. Today we embark upon an odyssey into the ethereal domains woven of dreams and visions, where enchantment and mystery dance in a harmonious cadence, unveiling the arcane artistry that defined a decade birth forth from the mind of our guest's narrative tapestry. We have with us the author whose book, The Written, became bestseller twice in Nordic myth and legend. He has given us tales of golems and giants of ghosts and ghouls. Sit back and relax as we bring to you one who transmute thoughts into literary gold, the distiller of imagination, the scribe of storytelling, the word alchemist, prose sorcerer, and ink mage. Ben Gailey, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you very much. That is probably one of the best introductions and most mystical introductions I've ever had. <laughs> well, I mean, in the beginning of the written, you, you begin with this really awesome little, little journal note of... The time before when basically giants walk the world. Can you give me some inspiration behind? Mm. I mean, obviously it was Nordic and Norse mythology, but what inspired you to write the written? Very good question. That little excerpt. So I love basically using excerpts at the start of, chapter, start of chapters and epigraphs. I absolutely love them. Um, that was the first one I ever, I ever wrote in chapter one of the written and i've put one next to every single chapter in every single book i've written since <laughs> mm -hmm. so yeah. yeah epigraphs are absolutely my bag i do love them because they do show extra lore and that obviously introduce you introduces you to the main part of kind of the emanesca series which is the world before um emanesca is uh, several thousand years after the gods and the demons and the giants fought um, they all were then dragged into the stars by the sacrifice of the gods and basically left the humans to it. The inspiration for the written overall, of course, came from a huge amount of Norse mythology. I have always wanted to be an author. I started writing when I was about 9, 10, 11. I wrote my first two books uh, sort of in my very early teenage years. They will never be published. <laughs> they, are, they are awful. They absolutely read like they were written by a 10-year-old. Uh, but it was a great foundation, yeah, and I loved it. And it gave me, it really did um, instill in me a, a fantastic appreciation for writing and an absolute love of it, which continued into my late teens and early 20s, which is when I published The Written. Um, and I'd taken a hiatus, you know, focusing on school, college, and, um, you know, life in general, <laughs> being right. a teenager, uh, and also, you know, being a, a young adult, kind of moving into the world of work and yeah, I was just struggling working dead-end jobs, and one day I just read American Gods, and it was the first time I've read anything in ages, and it just reignited all of the love for fantasy and the inspiration that I'd enjoyed uh, at younger ages, and I thought, I need to write something. And so American Gods was uh, a huge catalyst in, in really kind of getting that book, uh, my first book, written, pun intended, the written. Yeah, the written. <laughs> Yeah, um, so that was kind of uh, the main starting point. The inspiration, like I said, Norse mythology. Also a lot of, <laughs> in fact, there was one inspiration which really was kind of uh, kicked my ass and gave me the first initial kind of ideas and almost words. Because when I start writing books or when I first get the, the genesis of the idea, 
usually it's just a single word or f- uh, a single you know short phrase and i think hmm, this is interesting yeah. and i start to you know tug on those threads and i remember watching bbc's arthur which is no sorry merlin not arthur right. bbc's merlin even though arthur's in it um and i remember and again this has got nothing to do with people who like merlin it's fine it's a great tv show but for me at that time in that mindset i was like this is rubbish <laughs> i was like where's the grit where's you know the gore where's the true magic this is i know i, I know it was bbc that's fine <laughs> But I ended up being so annoyed with the first episode, which my mum was watching at the time. I was like, nope, I'm going to write my own fantasy and it's going to be dark and gritty. So I took all the inspiration of American Gods, you know, um, of course, that's all about mythology. Um, Mm -hmm. And I kind of wove it together with the first words that came into my head, which was uh, Emanesca, which ended uh, ended up being an anagram of namesake. Right. And the names Farden and Scallison, which is literally the main character and the name of his armor. So uh, right away, straight there, I had the genesis of the idea and I just started writing. And so to go back to your question, inspiration, (laughs) you know, I've um, researched a lot of theology. Um, I have been religious in the past. And so that quote and the reference of um, the Nephilim, which are basically the main bad guys of the first couple of books of Emanesca, mm-hmm. um, are taken directly from a line in Genesis of the Bible. Um, a bit sacrilegious, a bit heretical, you could say, <laughs> but I've rewritten it quite a lot. It's inspired by and not taken from. Um, but yes, that essentially refers to a part of Genesis where demons were breeding with humans. And so that is part of the crux of the story without any spoilers. And that there are Nephilim and they escaped the God's sacrifice uh, 2,000 years ago in my world. So, yeah, that kind of sets the scene, essentially. But lots of inspiration sources um, for both, you know, the mythology, um, the series as a whole. um, And, yeah, that that particular epigraph. Fantastic. And there's this value of fantasy that I think a lot of readers sense the big guy, you know, the professor, J.R. Tolkien, really birthed it forth onto our reading view and oh yes and others like him has followed and you know it's morphed into things dungeons and dragons it's changed over time there's this value of fantasy that i feel inspires people Mm. so why did you choose to write fantasy specifically and Mm. what important value do you think fantasy has on the role of imagination today hmm I think, a very good question, I think it's got a couple of answers. Um, For me, fantasy is looking through a portal. I used to say window or door, but I mean, same thing. Um, For me, it's being welcomed into a world completely unlike or largely unlike our own uh, that we get to explore and experience. So it is, in in my mind, SFF and speculative fiction in general takes the imagination required for novel reading or the imagination that the reader gets to enjoy in a book to other levels and further levels. Not to say that there's any sort of, you know, uh, ranking of, you know, which genres are, you know, better for the imagination or better for the reader. It's got nothing to do with that. But fantasy inherently lends itself to being able to push those boundaries and um, forces the author to create uh, more from, you know, the imagination rather than the world around them. Um, So I think, you know, just the genre itself is literally this amazing chance to look into a completely brand new world or a complete, uh, completely otherworldly area uh, or location or experience. Uh, all the while, we get to layer on the stories from our world and, you know, the importance of being human, the importance of existing, the questions that we have, you know, about life, existence. And everything. <laughs> large or small, and everything, yeah. <laughs> so we basically get to look through this window where things are completely different and yet see parallels in our own human struggles. And I think that's great. It's, it's wonderful to kind of, you know, layer those stories on, uh, sorry, layer those meanings and those uh, deeper questions onto something completely crazy and <laughs> completely new. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's, it's fun because it kind of masks the overall, uh, if an author is writing with an overall goal or trying to make an overall point or drawing parallels between, you know, politics or socioeconomical, <laughs> you know, their standpoints. 
fantasy and, and sci-fi as well to an extent is a great way of kind of masking it and disguising it as something else that doesn't necessarily ram a point down an uh, uh-huh. reader's throat from the outset or kind of become too real and that's the, you know the escapism is a huge part of that while at the same time addressing things and ideas and talking points that a lot of humans or all humans share <laughs> you know inherently um, and I, again, it's it also just drills down to it's fun, you know. Absolutely. If you ever get stuck in in terms of writing, magic, <laughs> kill someone <laughs> off, throw in a dragon, it's great fun. So it's kind of like this childlike enjoyment for me, um, because that's what I grew up reading and still read and still enjoy. It's just this complete escapism and complete fantasy. Yeah. You know, taking aside the magic and swords and dragons aspect of fantasy, it is fantastical. Um, that's why I also enjoy sci-fi as well. But again, fantasy will always be the number one for me. And that does come from Tolkien. <laughs> he was mm-hmm. literally The Hobbit was one of the first books I ever read as a child, along with C.S. Lewis, Redwall, and all sorts of fun classics. And it's just, yeah, it's escapism. And I really like that. I really, really do. <laughs> I'm obsessed. <laughs> it's uh, definitely in the line of thinking of individuals like, you know, Dante writes his Inferno, and it's clearly drawn these religious connotations but he's throwing certain politic into different levels of hell and just being exactly. led around you know by a philosopher of all people and yeah <laughs> layers on layers on layers yeah all of that and then you get Faust and he writes about his uh, Mestopheles and that's obviously some kind of parallel creature exactly yeah or we were talking about Milton's Paradise Lost with another person and we were talking about how love that this is Milton going, hey, I'm going to write a poem <laughs> explaining infinite being to human beings. Exactly. From the devil's point of view from the outside From as well. the devil's <laughs> point of view. You know, and Heretical. Obviously, C.S. Lewis does the same, you know, with screw tape letters. and Yeah, and his allegories for, you know, yeah, the sacrifice and the trinity. Yeah, I mean, it's his are not as veiled necessarily, which again is indicative of the times and also his prerogative yeah. as an author, C.S. Lewis. Of course. But yeah, it's definitely, you get the kind of, you can see there in the examples you mentioned, the kind of varying thickness or thinness of a veil that the author will put onto the book. And, and yeah, I think it's great. I mean, some people will argue that Tolkien did similar things. For me, I just enjoy it. <laughs> for, you know what, particularly with Lord of the Rings, I just enjoy it for the fantasy that it is. But yeah, and, and some books don't even have, you know, necessarily a veil. Some people just write for the fun of it and just yeah. write for that fantastical element. But, you know, the, the characters that they write are still, even if they're not human, still will have, you know, areas of humanity that even if they're very very light that the reader can kind of latch onto and, and understand and enjoy and experience as well so with all of the myths and all of the potential stories out there to draw your particular inspiration and since i like to talk about supernatural things around here mm. what kind of supernatural experiences or things you've found to be enough to put a pause and go hmm that is interesting (laughs) that's a good question i i mean i kind of grew up that's the thing i mentioned i was religious i was kind of brought up in a christian household and (laughs) then went my own way in sort of my college years uh when i was like kind of 18 19 i decided to switch (laughs) completely and become uh atheist slash agnostic some days it's one or the other but yes, I kind of have that, you could call it a myth. <laughs> I don't want to insult anyone religious out there. I'm not reducing Christianity to mythology. But it's, you know, it's kind of within a similar vein. But yes, yeah, so I mean, I had that kind of grounding and, you know, um, basically, yeah, the idea that not everything is as you see or there are other things behind what, you know, our eyes, our human eyes see of, the, of reality right. and our perception of it might not be the case. And that combined with growing up reading a huge amount of fantasy is kind of a, a strange mingled upbringing that kind of left me uh, initially completely close to the idea. <laughs> uh-huh. So yeah. I went, uh, after being kind of Christian, I went super scientific and still am. I love science. I studied science in college and kind of still do here and there every now and again. Um, it's one of my favorite kind of subjects in general. So 
so I kind of went scientific and full on atheist. Uh, you know, ghosts don't exist. And then while enjoying the myths and writing at that point, you know, um, mythology and, and writing the Emanesca series, uh, it was more just kind of the idea of like, oh, this is fun, this is fantasy, this is imagination. But then over the years, I've kind of become more open to it. So in the decade and a bit okay oh that's gone quick <laughs> since it goes fast yeah since um you know launching the written um i mean even then i kind of still had this uh you know fun fantastical side be like oh what if it you know what if it was real what if this was real that would be fun but in terms of the belief of that that has crept in over the years as my mind has become more open i've kind of absorbed more facts and also maybe non-facts <laughs> mm -hmm. um one of my favorite youtube channels is a channel called slapped ham don't know if you've come across it um it's a horror uh, channel really popular thousands and thousands of videos but it's compilations of weird supernatural happenings um from all around the world some of them are obviously fake <laughs> you, know? you can see that <laughs> exactly you can see the wires you know you can figure out how it was done but there are some genuinely that i have no clue um how this has happened they put the you know the tingle in the back of your, your neck your hair stand up on end um yeah. and you know that's just an example of of some of the belief that i've kind of gathered over the years you know ghosts view them with a scientific explanation you know different dimensions i'm not going to go into that side of things but you know i have kind of a rough semi-educated theory yeah. uh, of my own about kind of supernatural things that not necessarily scientific basis but you know <laughs> some of us still think the world is flat let's just say that so there's loads of things we don't know <laughs> that Fair could, enough. Uh, combined so i kind of have started believing almost through a scientific lens uh, or opening my mind up to the possibility that supernatural aspects actually do exist and i've always also had this kind of niggling idea that the um you know the history that we know is not limited to within the last 10 15,000 years you could probably stretch i'm again semi-educated <laughs> verging on conspiracy theories I'm fully convinced that there were, you know, areas of history that have been completely lost and that we could have had, you know, advanced civilizations or semi-advanced civilizations long before, you know, we think history or written history started. Yeah. Um, there's plenty of space. <laughs> there's plenty mm -hmm. of ways it can be lost. There have been plenty of dark ages in our past that we know of that have completely yeah. set, you know, things thousands of years backwards. So, you know, for me, I, I've started to see the gaps of where things could exist. And that was, that has become part of my inspiration as well as the idea that, you know, what if vampires and what if uh, werewolves have been lost? Um, dragons, for example, is one of my staunch beliefs that I'm pretty sure dragons actually existed. You know, they weren't just dinosaur bones, you know, dug up by emerging <laughs> civilizations. Sure. I'm pretty sure. I mean, you know, it's called me the kind of old romantic or fantasist or want to believe it. <laughs> Maybe I just want to believe it. But um, it's getting towards, you know, it's something I would definitely defend <laughs> mm -hmm. and discuss. Yeah. And yeah, I personally haven't had, you know, many what you could call supernatural. Yeah, I haven't lived in a haunted house or seen a ghost with my own eyes. Yeah. But I've had like a few very, very minor sort of situations that, again, raise your hackles and kind of make you believe. So, yeah, long story short, I'm definitely a believer in the supernatural, even if I apply some semi-scientific kind of belief to it. And that definitely has fed into my books. In fact, the opening chapter of my Scarlet Star trilogy is literally kind of a, a very, very short essay on the belief that I have now in the supernatural. And even that was written in 2014. So you uh -huh. can see things changing pretty rapidly. But it's the idea that, you know, our minds do slip to the fantastical, you know, when someone, I'm misquoting my entire, <laughs> my own books. That's good. It's roughly <laughs> along the line. Yeah. It's roughly along the lines of the point I'm making is essentially when you hear that they find a dead body down by the docks ripped to shreds we don't think serial killer we think well mm -hmm. i think it is a trait of humanity to remember again maybe it's part of our vestigial brains or you know something way 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 back in the past that's similar to the uncanny valley why does that freak us out why have we evolved to find such minute differences <laughs> in yeah. what a human does or doesn't look like you know what if there's something in the past that you know still remains and, you know, there was something. And I like to think about that. I think it's fun. No, that's really good. It's why, why could there not be 
Or why could not there have been several Ragnaroks already occurred is basically the idea. Yeah. You know, why do giants exist in multiple mythologies? And why is it always gods versus giants? You could argue that that was translated from one mythology to the other as stories were spread. Or you could argue that actually, no, there were beasts (laughs) of certain sizes um, that have just been lost to history and, and branded as myth and fantasy and folklore. Yeah, well, there's the idea that myth myth is more like faction than fiction. I like that, yeah. We're not really treading upon the idea of the imaginary, but upon humans' nearly impossible way to perceive things that they do not understand or can, mm. you know, pull a line from H.P. Lovecraft, the human cannot seem to correlate all of the things in their mind. Mm. Absolutely. So you're, you're stuck with this, right? You're stuck with this idea that ghosts or ghouls or goblins, you, we, we have these irrational fears, but are mm. they? Are yeah. they evolved items? That's a really good question. Mm, absolutely. And that's one that I really love to discuss. And yeah, why so many mythology or so much mythology makes its way into my books in general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If we were to look at Norse mythology specifically, what would be your favorite myth? And then could you extrapolate that into any other belief system? Ooh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a deep one. One of my favorites, or kind of a brand of one of my favorites, and actually I was kind of reading this over Christmas, is, I mean, one of the reasons I like mytholo- Norse mythology overall is it's just crazy. <laughs> the, you know, the, the kind of lengths that, um, you know, these bards or scouts would go to in terms of just imagination is fantastic. I think it's great. Um, so where you have basically Loki in disguise taunting Thor, um, you know, the classic myth where he has to do several challenges such as lifting up, you know, the cat, which is disguised as, as disguised as Jormungandr. Uh, you know, he has to, he almost drinks the ocean thinking it's a, a horn of beer or mead you know that one is absolutely one of my favorite because again it's it's this absolute belief in magic and the power of gods you know uh, as a human you might be thinking how the hell do you disguise the world serpent as a humble house cat like that is some deep epic magic and that's the sort of magic that if it was in a book you'd be like wait 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 we need some explanation where's the magic system here you know it it really does push uh into kind of fairy tale um sort of fan- very very fantastical elements and that was the one I, I just always loved because you know thor almost actually does end up lifting the world or lifts up part of the world serpent causes mass- massive earthquakes almost right. drains the ocean you know it's fantastic and the whole i, I mean loki has become a fan favorite because of a lot of, you know, most recent uh, Marvel interference. So if you say Loki, obviously you are thinking Tom Hiddleston most of the time now, which a couple of readers have mentioned in about my books. He said, why have you used Loki? He's really overdone. I was like, well, in 2010, he was not. (laughs) He didn't come out until 2011, wasn't it? Yeah, when the first Thor was released. So it's kind of, I wouldn't say soured, maybe overshadowed is a better phrase to use but yeah that original mischief of loki uh and also just swagger you know he's he's just a dick um Mm -hmm. (laughs) a lot of the stories um and i kind of like it and so yeah that kind of interaction between thor and you know the rest of the gods and loki is just fantastic but that particular one i i uh, remember reading when i was a kid and absolutely loved and it's always stuck in my head it's just the pure pushing of the boundary of imagination and I always like to imagine, you know, the people of Norse cultures, you know, back in the day being like, yep, that sounds about right. Yep. Not questioning anything at all. I mean, like, you're Mangunda, cat. Yeah. But that's, that sounds like Loki. You know what I mean? So I like the pure suspension of, of disbelief in that. And also it's fun to imagine the absolute belief that people might have had in this, you know, whether in this story or other variations. And in terms of... In terms of the tricks to God, I mean, yes, that the idea of you know tricks and spirits or tricks to gods definitely does pervade into other mythologies, and I think yeah, it's something that um, as Norse mythology is one of the first that I delved into. It's given me a thirst to get into mm-hmm. uh, other mythologies and to find parallels or to also find absolutely new ideas. Um, and Japanese mythology is something that I'm really really interested in the minute uh, in in at the minute. Um, you know, I grew up reading a lot of Egyptian, uh, Greek, Roman, uh, Near Eastern mythologies as well. 
Um, but yeah, uh, Japanese is something that I'm really, really interested in the minute, especially with the idea of, you know, the Okaida spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, there are trickster elements in there as well. And it's, it's really, really interesting um, to find parallels and non-parallels. So with your stories and the use of imagination, in your opinion, do you believe that incorporating these mystical elements adds some kind of layer of spirituality to your stories? I think so. Yes, is the short answer to that one. So, I mean, yeah, in terms of, you know, a mystic element, I do like to include belief. You know, I think it's one of my kind of guides to world building is the idea of, you know, drawing parallels because, you know, civilizations vary, cultures vary, often wildly. But there are several things that will always prevail or, you know, um, there will always be cornerstones of human culture. A belief, um, a mythology, beasts and creatures that may or may not exist, (laughs) you know. Um, Also, there are parallels such as, you know, when I'm world building, I'm always thinking of, you know, recreation, uh, cuisine, transportation you know so when i'm building i'm trying to uh, create an entire world essentially um, that is believable from every standpoint and that's where i think you know some uh worlds maybe fall down um when people are creating them is that they're not thinking of the parallels of what every civilization needs whether it's completely fantastical and you you know draw a parallel that is you know, a flipped parallel. <laughs> Maybe no one needs beasts of bird and Maybe they're all strong enough. You know, you can kind yeah. of twist everything. But as long as you're thinking about, you know, the cornerstones or aspects of a civilization, and one of those is belief. So I always do have an element of belief, mysticism, or religion in my books, even if my characters are wildly against it. And I do have, I will admit, some of the jaded aspects from <laughs> that I have or mm-hmm. areas that I'm jaded in from being religious yeah. back in the day do find their way into the books. So a lot of the times it's anti-religion in my books or anti-organized religion. And it's nothing to do with any specific real world religion or God or belief because that's not my place and it's not something I do. But I always add belief and mysticism into it. So, you know, there will always be a God, a a religion of some sort, a mystic leader and some sort of clashing belief system that either causes uh, you know a tension between characters or nations or sections of the book because i think it's important people are always you know looking for something to explain the unexplainable and whether that's the supernatural whether that's organized religion whether it's flat earth theory <laughs> right you know, things like that so I do try and replicate that within my books, and it does lead to certain characters, therefore, you know, taking on more of a mystic element or plot elements, therefore becoming uh, more mystical or even things that are completely unexplained and wild and, you know, strange that I, I let sort of hang in the book and have a lot of questions surrounding them. Because, again, that's a parallel that we experience in, our, in the real world. Absolutely, because I noticed that when you write... You, you tell us, you know, the character stops to have some cheese and bread, but you tell us what kind of cheese, what kind of bread. It's <laughs> yeah. You pull us into the story so that That's we it. are not mere observers, but we're experiencers within the world created. Yeah. And yeah. because you write about magic and the mystical, what are some of your, I mean, besides yourself, besides your own magic systems... What kind of magic systems did you draw inspiration from to craft into your novels? Good question. Yeah, I mean, because I've got quite a few magic systems and and mystic kind of elements in my books in general. Yeah. So for Emanesca, um, most of the magic is the idea of tattoos um, or spell books. Um, magic is spoken or spoken from written sources in my book so it's it's kind of traditional and you, it's nothing brand new even in 2010 you know the tattooed magic idea had or magical tattoo idea had been around for a while it's really funny now though because i do get comments being like you've stolen this from someone who wrote this in 2018 i was like <laughs> interesting i wrote this eight years before that <laughs> <laughs> good job <laughs> thank you job stealing from the future man. <laughs> exactly somehow i did it um but yes yeah, so it's you know it's it's a a more common idea these days as well. Um, but yeah, the idea of magical tattoos came from multiple mytho- mythological sources, uh, but was kind of 
I'm not saying I came up came up with it in isolation, uh, because it was a combination of different mythologies, yeah. uh, and the idea of spoken magic as well is right. your classic Lord of the Rings. You know, it's Gandalf pouring through books and learning magical words and mm-hmm. spells and things like that. You know, <laughs> it's it's kind of a standard you know approach to it. And I do have wizard, sorcerers, and mages. Ever so slight difference in between them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Emanesca, you could argue, is not necessarily the most original magic system, um, but it did have its inspirations in, you know, traditional tattooing, um, in the idea of, you know, protective tattoos or protective symbols as well. Um, with um, Blood Rush, my Scarlet Star trilogy, uh, mm-hmm. that's the first book of that uh, trilogy. Uh, it's all about, um, well, in fact, the whole trilogy is about blood magic. So it's the idea of imbibing uh, magic, uh, sorry, imbibing different types of blood from different types of creatures therefore will give you an effect mm-hmm. for example drinking centipede blood will give you armor for example mm-hmm. so i have quite again a very strict magic system it's a hard magic system with a whole ars magica appendix in the back of each book um and for that you know it was again inspired by a lot of different lore and mythology from near eastern middle eastern or african and also sort of middle asian um you know for example uh, a lot of cultures will uh, drink the blood of an enemy or consume the the fallen enemy to take the power you know mm-hmm. um sharing of blood has always been a massive thing you know life force the idea of blood being the life force which is yeah, yeah <laughs> scientifically biologically kind of true right <laughs> you know, has been passed down and kept alive in many, many different cultures. So it's the idea of power in blood and, you know, are you able to um, kind of absorb the power? Um, So again, that was more of a mythological aspect. Um, I do know that, you know, part of that was also inspired by uh, the Third Law Trilogy by Joe Abercrombie and the idea of the Eaters. And of course, inspired by, you know, vampire myth as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in multiple formats so that was you know uh, kind of yeah lots of different inspirations in that one and then with Chasing Graves is very Egyptian inspired um, so for the magic in that it's not a very hard magic that's very kind of minor magic in that one it's all to do with death magic and the idea of you know uh, a death uh, ceremony or a funeral ceremony which then binds souls and there are a few different ways you can bind a soul into inanimate objects or other creatures. And so the kind of soul magic and soul binding actually came from Skyrim <laughs> and Oblivion before that. And the idea of just like bonding souls <laughs> into soul gems and things like that. I quite like that idea. And that combined with a lot of Egyptian mythology and Egyptian culture. It was, yeah, absolutely where that came from. Um, so, yeah, I, I think in terms of magic systems, it, it comes a lot from mythology and history with a dabble of other things that I've read. I try not to steal a lot of, or you know, be inspired too much, you might say, um, by other magic systems in books. But in terms of ones that have inspired me in general, um, yeah, I've mentioned Third Law. Um, of course, the Alamancy uh, magic system in Brandon Sanderson's uh, books is is fantastic. It's great. Yeah. It's a very hard magic system. We love mm-hmm. that. Uh, Why well, personally do? <laughs> Lots of people like the hard exactly. systems. Exactly. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I like a system that has you know um, rules and rigidity to it that mm-hmm. can be broken sometimes. <laughs> we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that really really spoke to me in terms of uh, you know how how kind of original you can go with it while also kind of maybe not, even if it's not original, creating rules that are original and creating a system that is original. So yeah, Alamancy was fantastic. Um, I also really, again, not really a magic system, but the way uh, magic kind of exists in the world, um, the golden compass and, you know, his dark materials, the idea of just, you know, the different states of the soul is really important for chasing graves as well. Mm -hmm. Um, The other magic systems I really enjoy is, well, less of a magic system, but just the prevalence of magic. I love books that just have no explanation for magic and it just exists. And it's just the wildest, strangest magic you've ever seen. Nicholas Eames does that incredibly well. Um, And as well as uh, Christopher Bielman and Black Tongue Thief, which I'm actually just finishing off right now. It's just, it's no explanation. I love it. It's like not even a system. It's not even soft magic. It's just magic. Like, oh, here we have a house that's made of bones and blood and just gets up and moves around. Brilliant. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. That would be the home of the Baba Yaga. Exactly. Yeah. And it's it's something that I really do want to write because I do, I am a little OCD here and there, let's say. 
and mm-hmm. so I do like to have rules and rigidity mainly initially for my own understanding before it's obviously shown to a reader um, but yeah there are <laughs> lots of rules in my books and it'd be nice to write one that just says who cares let's have a moving house made of horse bones <laughs> it's almost like a science fantasy as opposed to science fiction you have to have these rules exactly yeah no science fantasy is something I'd love to dig into as well as opposed to the magic system that we find in Lord of the Rings, which doesn't really seem to be hard at all. It's just, it's magic and it's there and things happen. Exactly. Yeah. It's very soft touch, which is something, even in the films, they kind of did a bit more in The Hobbit, which I think mm-hmm. is, is great. But yeah, to see Gandalf really not, not kind of pulling out the big spells <laughs> that we kind of maybe used to seeing. Right. When you watch something like, you know, the film adaptation of World of Warcraft. It is very, very cinematic, epic magic constantly. Right. Whereas, you know, in the original Lord of the Rings films by Peter Jackson, it's kind of very gentle, soft magic. Mm-hmm. You only really see him split a bridge in half and have a, you know, a shield go around him. And that's literally it. <laughs> it's the way a story is supposed to be told anyways. Exactly. The power of storytelling, very yeah. important. Well, as we move on and we conclude with the episode here, I want to talk about anything that you've got finished, anything in the pipeline, Mm -hmm. and then let's talk about your Kickstarter for book three, and we'll wrap it up with anything else you want to talk about. Sure, yeah. So in the pipeline... At the moment, I am finishing off the Scallison Chronicles, which is the sequel series to the Emanesca series. That is about halfway at the moment. It's called, it's a book called To Kill a God, and it is it's got Loki in it. <laughs> he's, of course, he's now one of the main villains. <laughs> but is he though? Is he? That's the thing. Yeah, and again, that's why I can say that it's not necessarily a spoiler. Also, you kind of sometimes uh, see it coming with the word Loki now. <laughs> but in any case. Um, so yeah, To Kill a God is my current project and that should be finished and out this year. I'm also finishing off um, another series, another trilogy at the moment, my Bloodwood Saga. Um, book two, Demon's Rage, is coming out February 20th. So that's my kind of newest book that's coming out. Uh, the cover actually got revealed yesterday on the 9th, which is really, really fun. Um, so proud of that cover. Again, I didn't make it. It was fantastic artist, Mansik Yang and Sean King that did it, but it looks mm-hmm. so good. I never thought I'd have pink as a predominant, like electric pink as a predominant color in a fantasy book. And somehow it works. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, no, it's great. Great design choice by short. But yeah, so those are the, the, the two um, most immediate things. Um, obviously, I'll leave the Kickstarter for the next question. Um, but then I'm, because I'm finishing off two trilogies, I'm starting a really exciting stage. So I have... Basically, the next 15 years of books already planned out. Um, I have a range of uh, standalones, fantasy standalones, kind of science fantasy, pushing the envelope, kind of expanding my my sort of my own cosmere that I've, I've built over the last year or two. Um, and yeah, just really digging into brand new stuff. So no book twos, no book threes, <laughs> no sequels, no prequels. It's yeah. going to be all brand new stuff. So it's kind of a new, a new era, a new dawn, essentially, in that, in that sense, um, which I'm really excited about. And that's going to be... We'll see how these book three, how long these book threes take, but either at the start of the year or first thing next year, I'm going to be writing something brand new. <laughs> and then your Kickstarter, you you've done book one and two for yep. the written Amanisca, excuse me, and now you've got the third one coming out. What are we looking at for that? Ooh, we are going to be hopefully launching that February 6th, so just before Demon's Rage comes out. Um, and yeah, that's for uh, book three of four of the Amanesca series, so Dead Stars Part 1. Um, so it's going to be, we've done red for the first one. We've kind of stolen the colors from the original covers. Uh-huh. Um, but yes, we've done red, we've done blue. Now we're doing a deep kind of forest green, which is excellent. And then, yeah, so that's going to be Kickstarter 3 or 4, and 4 will be coming probably the same time next year. I was going to try and fit into this year, but nah. <laughs> Kickstarters okay. are a lot of work. <laughs> Let's do one Kickstarter at a time. Exactly. It's <laughs> yeah. a lot of anticipation. It is. It's just, it also, you know, with the printing time and the shipping time, it can take up to nine months as well. So it's uh-huh. kind of cramming it in too close before Christmas, I think. So 
Yeah, probably we'll do one this year, one next year. And then after that, Kickstarters have become a huge, important part of my career uh, and my sort of author brand. So, yeah, I'm going to be bringing the Chasing Graves trilogy to Special Edition Omnibus. I'm going to yeah. be doing uh, one. So, oh, I'm also going to be relaunching my Scarlet Star trilogy this year as well with new covers and new interior art and just new versions. Um, almost like a 10 year in fact. Oh my God, it's going to be 10 years since I published it. So, yeah, it's a 10 year relaunch. Boom. There you actually. go. And I like Things, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like it when things fall together like that. It's it's fun actually because the the first Kickstarter for the written uh, was the ten year anniversary special edition, but it ended up being too long a, a word, you know, <laughs> or too long a title. The written special illustrated edition, ten years anniversary collector's edition, was just too long. So yeah, <laughs> but it's great. You know, it's it's great to actually be thinking, wow, this book is ten years old. And even when I'm writing my main character Farden, who's obviously still in Scalus and he's still one of the main characters, yeah, he is. It's just weird. <laughs> you know, we've been together for fourteen years. I can mm-hmm. almost sometimes I feel I'm just almost like looking out from the page and being like, really, <laughs> have we done this before? Or are you going to put me through this again? Yeah, so it's kind of fun, but. It's going to be probably 2025 and six for the future future Kickstarters for okay. Jason Graves and Scarlet Star. But yeah, it's it's something that's become you know really part of my kind of annual uh, release schedule and something that I really really enjoy doing. Yeah. Cool. If anybody wanted to find out more information, BenGailey.com or is that the site? Yep, bengali.com, nice and easy, or I've got linktree uh, forward slash bengali. So if you um, want to find all of my links, you can get a free Emanesca short story on my website. Uh, linktree will take you to all of my social media pages, my Discord, my Patreon, uh, Amazon, all sorts. Yeah, nice and easy. Your delightful Discord, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> it's fun. It's growing. It's growing pretty quickly as well. Certainly, it's, it's barely a year old now, I think. Um, and it's really fun. Yeah, i really, really big fan of Discord. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Brian. It's been a blast to chat mysticism and history and mythology. It's great. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. This is a free podcast based upon the value for value model. If you find value in this or any episode, you can return that value by liking the show, subscribing to this channel, leaving a review, or sharing with a friend on your social media accounts. You can also donate on my website. Thank you again. This is BT for Truth and Shadow Podcast. You are the light in the darkness.